Welcome to the War Room. Ryan Ray here reminding you that this show is listener supported at warroommedia.com. You can sign up for the free option, but if you want to support the show, that is where you do it. And oh, by the way, we will be rolling out YouTube episodes, so be sure to be on the lookout for that. Again, warroommedia.com is where you stay up to date with everything, communicate with me, see all of the past episodes, warroommedia.com. Now, let's get to the show. Mark, welcome to the War Room. Hey, thank you, Ryan. Happy to be talking with you. Okay, so uh, I always am curious what gets people to write these types of books from the perspective of um, lifelong passion, specialty interest, or passion projects. So what got you into this particular one? Well, I tell you, it starts with my childhood. My uh, my father was a, a logger in Missouri. He cut timber, hardwoods, and walnuts. He was self-employed, and but he always made sure in the summers to take off 10 days to two weeks to take the family on a vacation. And my parents were interested in history and they collected antiques. And they also had a very limited education. Uh, My father had to go to work in the woods when he was uh, not even out of sixth grade. My mom had me when she was 17. And so these vacations were, you know, really educations for all of us, the kids and my parents. And I don't think there was a historic side or, our house or battlefield that we didn't try to hit. And one of them that really stayed with me was Little Bighorn Battlefield. And, you know, I grew up and became a, a historian and a writer, and, and I've written a lot about a lot of subjects. Uh, and I've written about uh, Little Bighorn for the National Park Service. But, um, you know, in my childhood, the focus was on Custer and, and what happened to those men and, and the decisions he made. Um, but as I got older, I became interested in the people that won the battle and why were they, why were they there? And why was Custer uh, attacking that village? So that's kind of a, a long winded answer to your question. No, that's great. Um, you mentioned Custer real quick. So I am from a town called Mun- originally from Munder, Louisiana. I don't live there anymore. And I, and I believe mm-hmm. one told me that Custer made his way through that part of the, of the state at one point. Do you, does that story ring a bell or, um, you... Well, in, in, are you saying in Louisiana? Or... Yeah, it'd be like the northeast part of Louisiana. Yeah. Well, after the war, uh, he did serve in Texas, and so it's quite possible that he went through Louisiana to get to a station uh, in Texas. I I don't know, but um, I could see that route uh, as a possibility, certainly. Yeah, yeah, okay. Like I said, it kind of just made me think about it when you, when you brought that up. Um, yeah, so the town that now from is... Um... Under Louisiana, and there was a there's a fort there back in the day, and all that, and so. Uh, mm, okay. Okay. So uh, perhaps, perhaps not. And he know. was from, and he was from, uh, or spent a lot of time in Monroe, Michigan. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's funny. Interesting coincidence, yeah. Okay, um, so you mentioned you were fascinated with Custer and some of the decisions that he made, uh, and then you kind of switched over to the to the other side of the story. Um, and, and I'm just curious about this period of history where we sit today, um, how do you go about telling these stories, these narratives? Because I, this is a, a question from, from ignorance. Um, how, how much of history is recorded from both sides of these battles in these, uh, from the tribes and from um, you know, the U.S. side? Sure. Um, well, we're very fortunate that we have a lot of recorded information. And when I say recorded, uh, everything from uh, oral histories, 
um, interviews that were given both at the time, you know, shortly after 1876, to the oral histories that were written down in the late 1920s and early 1930s. And for this particular project, you know, the thing about Little Bighorn, it was such um, a watershed moment, such a shock for the United States government that there was all this intense focus on, you know, the decisions that were made. And in fact, there was even a, uh, uh, what do they call it, a court of inquiry uh, over Major Reno's actions during the battle. And there was all this testimony given uh, from officers and enlisted men. And it was all, you know, writ- published by the Chicago Tribune and, and taken down by stenographers. So that side was extremely well covered. And then those veterans, they told their stories for decades. As long as they were alive, people are asking them. But on the other side, uh, we were also fortunate because, again, uh, some early newspaper correspondents, when some of these, um, some of the warriors who had fought Custer uh, surrendered within, the, within, the, within 12 months, Crazy Horse, uh, well, actually just over 12 months' time, Crazy Horse had surrendered. And, and when some of these groups came in, uh, there were correspondents that asked them to talk about, you know, the battle. And, and, and then a, a very rich uh, resource, uh, there was an author named Walter Campbell who wrote under the pen name Stanley Vestal. And he decided he wanted to do a biography of Sitting Bull. So he did the smart thing. He traveled up to the Standing Rock Reservation and the Cheyenne River Reservation and interviewed extensively those who knew both Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. And some of the best were Sitting Bull's nephews, One Bull and White Bull, who fought at their uncle's side. So we're actually really fortunate that we have a lot of primary source material. Um, the challenge for the historian comes with the interpretation. <laughs> you know, sometimes they don't, you know, it'd be great if they all agreed. Right. But uh, they, don't, they don't always agree. So you mentioned earlier, going back to this point about why are they there, was the Treaty of Fort Laramie, is that in the backdrop of what's going on here, or is that a separate issue? No, that's in the backdrop because uh, the Treaty of Fort Laramie had, had um, you know, uh, I don't want to say grant because it was their land already, but it um, uh, laid out what was to be Lakota lands and a Lakota reservation. And so there's the Great Lakota Reservation, which is basically you know, everything west of the Missouri and South Dakota. And then there was the unceded territory, which was also Indian land, and that covered the Powder River country. Um and that was to be, you know, belong to Lakotas. They could use that. They could live on that. Uh, but what happens is they discover gold in the Black Hills. And that's on the Great Sioux Reservation. Most of it is. And so the U.S. government, they want to get the Lakotas to sign away that land. And Crazy Horses people, uh, I call them the anti-treaty bands, they kind of disrupted this, tr- this attempt to sell off these lands. And the U.S. government, Grant's administration, decided the only way we're going to settle this is to force um, Crazy Horse and City Bull and their followers onto the reservation, and then we can force them to sign over the land. So, yes, but that treaty is significant to this because, uh, you know, that treaty was binding, and they had to figure out a way of getting out of it. I'm talking about the government. They had to figure out a way to get the Lakotas to relinquish it, and as long as Crazy Horse and City Bull were out there, that was never going to happen. Now, is this, and this is, again, just trying to remember a little bit here, is this the treaty that eventually they, the government offers to pay the Sioux tribe and the Sioux tribe never takes the money? And so when they argue today, they're still arguing about the money that was offered they never paid. Is that, is that the same? Is this the same? It is the, it is the same uh, treaty. And it's, it's really, it, you, you make a very good point. I'm glad you brought it up. 
Um, so there was a stipulation in the Treaty of Fort Laramie from 1868, and it, it says very clearly that in order for land to be relinquished, there had to be a vote, uh, and, and it had to be a yes vote of three quarters of the male population of the Lakota tribe or Lakota nation. So after the Little Bighorn, the U.S. government does force uh, several leaders to sign away the Black Hills, but that wasn't part of the, you know, that wasn't in the treaty. It had to be three quarters of the male population, a positive vote. And so that's why the case was brought, you know, and it ends up going before the Supreme Court and the Lakota Nation wins. And they got a settlement that's now in excess with interest of $2 billion, but the Lakotas refused to accept the money. They, uh, you know, it's their land and, and they want their land back. They don't want the money. So that money still sits supposedly in an Indian Bureau account, but it all goes back to that Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I first came across that with, uh, uh, there was a, a pipeline issue. And, and part of the issue, I think, that they were arguing the tribe was is that, they, that they still had a right to the land because they they'd never taken the money. So um, it, it's, it's interesting this you can get all kinds of different things on that, but anyways. Um, okay. So unpack for us the main characters here, um, because these are names that we've heard, but names we, we, we might. Right. Not know. Oh, well, um, so, uh, uh, sitting bull is hunk Papa. That's a band uh, of the Lakota nation. And really, uh, the Northern Lakota is also known as the Teton Lakotas. Um, he's born in 1831. Uh, he's born at a time which is really, uh, the, I would say, the glory years of Lakotas because there there isn't yet this huge influx of Euro-Americans uh, onto their lands. Mostly, uh, they're dealing with uh, traders and trading posts, um, and that was very satisfactory for them. They could get manufactured goods. They had an outlet to trade their tan buffalo robes, uh, and their culture could thrive, um, but that didn't last. For very long because you eventually have the Oregon California Trail, um, you have railroads. I mean, the encroachment just continues to spread during his lifetime. And Sitting Bull uh, grows up to be a first a noted warrior, then a noted war chief, and eventually uh, the leader of all the anti-treaty bands of Lakotas and Cheyennes on the Northern Plains. And his goal is essentially, very simply, we want to be left alone. We don't want to see any whites. We want our homeland, you know, preserved. Uh, we, you know, we don't want to deal with you. We're not going to sign treaties. We don't recognize treaties. We don't recognize reservations. That was uh, entirely his belief. Crazy Horse is about nine years younger. He's in Oglala. And he becomes, again, a noted warrior like Sidney Bull and rises to great fame as perhaps the greatest Lakota warrior of all time, certainly one of the bravest, uh, and becomes a war chief of the Oglalas and becomes a close friend and ally of Sitting Bull. And they share the same goal. We want to live alone separately. We do not want to deal with whites and we're not going to recognize their treaties uh, or their reservations. And, and how long, uh, or I don't know how long is the right way to think about it, but this distrust that's going on, um, had it been, what, were, were there periods leading up to this where it was better or was this a constant, a constant kind of, bowling point um so if you were if you were if you're an average american kind of following the news would you have been surprised that 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 this event happened um are you talking about 1876 or 
Little Bighorn? Or? Yeah, I'm sorry, Little, little Bighorn. Little Bighorn. Yeah, I, oh yeah, I mean, um, now there was certainly, the, the papers carried uh, extensively the news of these negotiations. Um, you know, the one in 1875, because, you know, uh, Custer and his 7th Cavalry, they had discovered gold in the Black Hills on an expedition in 1874, and that was all over the, the papers, uh, all over the country, and that caused a huge you know, there had already been, you know, people trying to slip in, but then this caused a wide open rush. And so this whole issue of trying to get the Lakotas to see that land, because the whites were already there and they were building towns. And so this was well reported. And then it was also this attempt, uh, this council meeting where they tried to get the Lakotas to sign away the Black Hills. That was also well reported. So that the, the public in the East, they well knew uh, the issues that were behind uh, you know, what was going on in the Northern Plains. But they also were getting some misinformation. And this expedition of 1876, um, that was painted by Grant's administration as uh, um, they were retaliating for hostile actions by these anti-treaty bands. They really played up that they're, they're attacking settlers and causing trouble. And uh, really what the expedition was about was to force them to come to terms and to force them on the reservation. But so what the American public knew was that, oh, they're sending Custer and these other columns out there because these are belligerent people that are causing trouble. Um, but really, uh, Grant wanted to put an end to any uh, uh, kind of, um, uh, any, any uh, wanted to put an end to objections you know, amongst the Lakotas and force them to go along with taking the Black Hills. Yeah, and that's what makes it hard when you evaluate these stories is, um, and, and this is one of the things I, I find, I love talking to historians because I find fascinating is if you just take three characters, if you will, Custard men, um, uh, the Sioux tribe, uh, and then an average American, right? The, the ability for an average person at any point in history to fully understand the circumstances that they're in is really tough. And so it makes it tough on how you view and judge these people when you go back in history, because, um, the information available and their ability to deduce what is fact from not fact as uh, this period, I guess would be even harder because um, the availability to information would have been, would have been tough. And so um, I guess my question is when you're trying to put this together, as you mentioned, you have conflicting stories, but then how do you go about trying to, to tell a fair representation of what, what should someone have understood about what was going on? Well, you make a very good point. Um, it reminds me of uh, there was a, a missionary uh, who was very close to Lakotas, and he would write letters um, to papers in New York. And he said, you know, the Lakotas, they don't have their own newspapers to give their side of the story. All, all you're reading is what uh, the military and, and, and some of the whites that are writing back, um, but you're getting one side. Mm. And so, yeah, my job as a historian is to try to get that other side. And I even say in my book, you know, I'll say, we don't have Sitting Bull's version of this event when he was, uh, you know, in conflict with the Standing Rock agent. All we have is the Standing Rock agent's report. And he hated Sitting Bull. Mm -hmm. You know, it's too bad we don't have Sitting Bull's view mm -hmm. of this encounter or this event, because I think it would be really different uh, from that. So, you know, my goal is to try to, to figure out, you know, based on other eyewitness accounts, um, you know, and, and, and also Sitting Bull's, uh, you know, what we know about him as far as what his view was 
and, and the fact that he wanted to preserve his culture uh, and, you know, protect his followers and try to discern that. And, and fortunately, we do have a lot of those eyewitness accounts. And I'd mentioned before his nephews, uh, they share, you know, what Sitting Bull was thinking and what he was trying to do. Uh, his two wives, after Sitting Bull was killed, you know, they survived. Sitting Bull had children that survived. Uh, in fact, uh, Sitting Bull's great-grandson is alive today, and he wrote a biography of his great-grandfather, uh, which is very worthwhile. Um, so, you know, uh, you have to do you know, more digging, uh, but it's there uh, in, you know, most of the time. Uh, so I feel very fortunate that I was able to, to, you know, use those resources because, you know, people, people try to write books about, I don't know, you know, Cleopatra or something, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, what is there out? I mean, you know, uh, were there, I mean, uh, what are the sources to, to tell a life biography of Cleopatra? Um, you know, so I would find that much more challenging than what I was doing because of, uh, the primary source material that's available to us now. Mm -hmm. So when you're going through and, and, and you're looking at, um, you mentioned that they're wanting to preserve their culture. Um, at face value, you can go, okay, yeah, but, but what about their, their culture? Did they find that was important to preserve that separated them from the Americans? Sure. Well, um, there are several things. I mean, it, it was really a way of life. I mean, they, that's what they grew up knowing and their, their ceremonies and their beliefs. Um, and, you know, I guess to put it more simply, uh, the Indian Bureau, they believed in order for the American Indian to survive, they had to erase, erase all vestiges of their culture. That meant their language, uh, the way they dress. They wanted to dress like white people. Um, they sent their kids to boarding schools, cut their hair. The boys had to wear uniforms. The girls wore dresses. Um, and then they banned many ceremonies one of the one of the integral ceremonies and events in in lakota life was the sun dance and in the 1880s the indian bureau banned it because it was you know quote paganism um so you know uh it would just to me it would be like let's say you know like i grew up in missouri as a southern baptist and somebody came in and and forced me and said you're no longer a baptist you know you're going to be this and, you know, you're going to have to learn a different language. <laughs> you know, everything that I knew as a child, they're trying to take away from me. And the essence of my survival and, and my spirit is, uh, is my culture. Um, and so that's what Sitting Bull, even on a reservation, he, you know, his followers, he tried to protect them and allow them to practice the same ceremonies, to speak their language. And, you know, one of the things about Sitting Bull, he wasn't opposed to the fact he wanted the children to learn how to read and write, but he couldn't understand why they couldn't read and write in Lakota. You know, why can't we read and write in our own language? So that's what I mean by preserving their culture. Um, it's, it's their spirit, their will to live. Um, you know, that's, that's exactly what their culture is about. What was the process like for them to adapt to this new area? Because they're originally from uh, a little bit further east than where they're at in, a, in this time period, right? Sure. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, uh, the Lakotas excelled once they acquired the horse. Uh, you know, the horse comes to the North American continent from the Spaniards. And uh, these horses, you know, make their way up through, through a trade. Some of the horses become wild. Uh, horses are starting to be stolen <laughs> amongst different uh, you know, indigenous nations. But yeah, the L Lakotas and other tribes 
um, were on foot. And uh, once they acquire the horse, they become, you know, the epitome of these nomadic people. And their life is intricately tied to following the buffalo herds. The buffalo herds are, feed them, provide shelter, their clothing. Uh, it's a buffalo culture, as I explain in the book. But yes, once they once they have the ability uh, to have horses, then their range expands by hundreds of miles, and they're able to take territories and horses uh, from others. Their uh, their uh, age-old enemies, the crows. I write in the book. You know, why did they? Why were they enemies of the crows? Well, the crows had uh, good buffalo land and good horses. So uh, that's what the Lakotas went after. Yeah, and, and unpack that for us, because earlier, earlier you said um, something to the effect of, I hate to say that their land because it was their land, but um, how, what was their view, the Lakotas view specifically, of land, land ownership, um, how you acquired it, did you acquire it? That, un, unpack that, because I've, I've not... I mean, I've heard generalizations, but I'm not sure I've ever heard talk to an expert on like how would they have viewed who was the rightful possessor of a piece of land. Sure. Um, well, Luther Standing Bear, who he uh, was born at the very end, in fact, in the reservation era, but early in it. And fortunately, he uh, you know he went to the Carlisle Indian School, and and one good thing that came out of that was that he learned how to you know write and speak English, and he uh, became an important cultural intermediary because he's related so much about the thoughts and the history of the Lakotas. And he said, you know, most of our troubles were over uh, hunting grounds and boundary lines. And that's exactly it because those, those hunting grounds and boundary lines are basically whoever can hold it and keep the others out or who you can take. And so the Lakotas, they weren't the first to go into the Black Hills, but they did, you know, they did eventually and they pushed other nations uh, out and or at least followed them in. And they considered the Black Hill sacred. I mean, as Luther Standing Bear said, it was like a child going to its mother's arms. So, yes, maybe they started out in Minnesota, um, but they considered uh, the Black Hills their homeland. And they were able to hold it until uh, the Euro-Americans came and the, uh, the U.S. Army. But as far as the Powder River country, you know, they got that by pushing the crows out and, and up on the northern plains, uh, farther up in Montana, the same thing. And it wasn't like the crows just rolled over. You know, they fought and tried to maintain their areas as well. Uh, in fact, uh, at the Battle of Bighorn, that location is actually on land ceded by treaty to the Crow Nation. That was Crow land uh, at the time. But, you know, it's like how the, you know, you know, go ahead, push us out if you can, but the Lakotas were there. So uh, whether it was by treaty or legally owned by the Crows, uh, the Lakotas went where they could go. And if they could go there, then they considered it their land. So then I guess that raises the next question, which is how do we view who is the rightful owner of a piece of, of, of these lands? Because uh, if, the, if the tribes are fighting each other and then the U.S. is fighting the tribes and you have the treaties and stuff like, how do you unpack who should be the rightful owner of a piece of land at any point in time from, from your historical view? Well, it's very, um, it's very difficult because um, uh, I mean, the way it's done now, it goes back to those treaties. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the problem with that is that uh, there are legitimate arguments that uh, the leaders that signed those treaties didn't represent all the Lakotas. Crazy Horse and Fitting Bull never signed a treaty. And it, the, the Lakotas referred to it as touching the pen. You know, they couldn't sign their name in English. Sitting Bull could later if he was taught. 
but it was touching the pin. And so that was one of the, the very uh, strong bones of contention within the Lakota tribe is that you had these, they, they would call them treaty chiefs. They would sign treaties and give away Lakota land for annuities or whatever in exchange. And it's like, hey, I didn't sign that. Um, and you know, you're, you're signing away something that belongs to all of us. And uh, in fact, one, one Lakota chief named Beartrip was killed because he signed a treaty uh, by others, by other Lakotas. Um, so uh, anyway, but still, even today, the claims that exist tend to go back to these treaties as uh, fallible as they are. And in, eight, in the early 1850s, there, there was another treaty where, you know, they thought, you know, that they could get all the, the tribes to settle down and not war against each other if they drew out on paper all their territories and they all signed to it. Uh, and so that was the kind of the first way of marking out these lands. But then that treaty of 1868 that we've referred to now a few times, that laid out, quote, the Great Sioux Reservation and next to it to the west, the unceded territory, which was also considered. The unceded territory, just to clarify, they wanted the Lakotas to live on the reservation, but they could go into the unceded territory to hunt. And the treaty said as long as hunting was viable, basically as long as buffalo remained to hunt, they could go use that. So they were within their legal rights to be there in 1876. So anyway, modern day court cases and the one we talked about with the Black Hills, they go back to that treaty. And it's really ironic, Ryan. You know, I told you that Crazy Horse and City Bowl never signed a treaty. Well, had those other chiefs not signed that 1868 treaty, they wouldn't have had a court case before the Supreme Court. Um, you know, if they if they'd all, you know, that's the way the legal system works. If they all, you know, if they all refused to sign a treaty, well, they'd have no legal document to say, hey, you know, it said three quarters of the male population have to vote yes. So thank goodness those guys did did sign the treaty, unlike Crazy Horse and City Bowl, because now they got two billion dollars. Uh, worth a settlement that's sitting in an Indian Bureau account. That's wild. <laughs> that's wild. I mean, yeah. and, and that's the thing. Like when you get into this stuff, it's just it's it's never cut and dry. It's always like, wow, if you did this, and then, then, then of course you yeah. can't you can't imagine in 2022 that you know what you're doing in 1876 is going to have any relevance. Of course, and so it's it's fascinating just how <laughs> how all well, that's and the, and like, Ryan, there's within within the American Indian. Uh, uh world um i mean and you may have read this i mean you know it, this comes up a lot uh in the last couple of years during the pandemic but there it's called the land back movement and there are lots of ancestral lands uh that indigenous americans claim that you know there's unfortunately there's not a treaty uh that necessarily sets that out um but there's lots lots of places um that american indians still claim today is theirs one you know, one really sad story is that with the Pike Peak Gold Rush, uh, all these miners came out and they built the town of Denver. And at that time, it was Cheyenne and Arapaho land. I mean, they were they were trespassing. Uh, but after some, uh, you know, after a war, uh, the U.S. government is is you know essentially forces the Lakotas and she I mean the Cheyennes and Arapahos to give that up and move to Indian territory. Uh, I mean, it, it just seems like there's a pattern. Uh, they end up ceding land after they're defeated, yeah. and there's no hope. And um, you know, it's just kind of a sad story with with lots of these things. But anyway, for the Lakotas, uh, they're luckier than most, and that they had that binding document that the Supreme Court agreed with them. Okay, let's focus in now on the uh, 
about a little bighorn. Um, okay. So obviously it's, it's, you know, something that in school we hear about. Um, I don't want to get into maybe all the military tactics and whatnot, but just give us an overview of, of what was at stake? What was um, kind of thought? Um, obviously, you know, we, we have perceptions from school of what we think we might know, but give us kind of an overview of, of what led up to that, like in the days and weeks before, um, why did it turn out the way that it did? And what was the fallout from that battle? Sure. Well, um, it was Little Bighorn was really uh, part of this um, grand scheme, or or I should say, I guess, plan. Uh, the army was going to send three columns uh, into this area that they believe these anti-treaty bands were. They were correct. I mean, uh, they knew pretty much what part of the, uh, the you know, that area they were going to be in or where they should find them. And one column was under George Crook. Uh, the other column was going to be under George Custer and his 7th Cavalry. And then a third column was uh, under the command of the entire um, uh, expedition, which was uh, General Terry. And um, anyway, so they were to start at different points. And Crook is coming from the south. Custer and the other column, they're coming from the north. They're going to kind of hone in. They think that the these anti-treaty bands in the Rosebud Valley or Little Bighorn Valley, which are very close to each other, um, in June, uh, just a short time before Little Bighorn, Crook encounters these Lakotas and Cheyennes at the Battle of the Rosebud. And it's like uh, a complete shock because it's an overwhelming number of warriors. Uh, you know, they're fighting. You know, military officers are used to uh, the Indians running away and fleeing and breaking up into smaller and smaller bands. Well, here's a united fighting force that attacks them. And it ends up being kind of a stalemate. They fight all day, and finally the Lakotas and Cheyennes are hungry, their horses are tired, and they, they, they feel confident that these troops aren't going to be following them because they've inflicted heavy blow. And so they go back to their village and Crook ends up, you know, retreating to his base camp. And it's like, you know, I've had enough of this. <laughs> we need to rest. Um, but then Custer's, he's starting down um, from the Yellowstone River or the Tongue River, and a camp on the Tongue River. And, um, you know, he has fresh trail and he has scouts and they find this giant camp. Uh, in the Little Bighorn Valley, and he can, you know, kind of see it through his uh, binoculars from a place called the Crow's Nest, which is several miles away. Uh, and his scouts are telling him it's a huge village, and it's really dusty and cloudy because the horse herd. Is in them. There's thousands of horses in this horse herd, um, and Custer's, you know, thinking, you know, uh, his his usual mo was, you know, we're going to attack at daylight and take him by surprise. Well, then he gets news from his scouts that they believe that the Lakotas have discovered them. And Custer's great fear, like other military officers, is that they're going to run away. And, you know, they want to they want it to defeat them soundly so they'll come to the reservation. And he can't afford the embarrassment of letting this large village, sitting bull and crazy horse, get away from him. So he or- issues immediate orders uh, to attack. And it's, you know, it's the middle of the day. It's hot. Uh, they haven't had little rest as troopers. Um, and, of course, they weren't running away. And he makes a fatal mistake. And when he's nearing the village, he divides his regiment up into three uh, strike forces, essentially. And he takes one battalion. Major Reno has another. He orders Major Reno to hit the village, which is the southern end. That's where Sitting Bull's camp is. And uh, Custer claimed he was going to support Reno. But instead, he rides along the ridge with his men, some 200. And uh, he gets a real uh, big view of this village, finally. And it's huge. It goes for you know, maybe a mile and a half, two miles in length. 
and holds perhaps 1,200 to 1,500 warriors. Uh, so uh, Reno is soundly repulsed because, you know, he's divided his regiment so the Lakotas can really kind of piecemeal attack these different uh, units. And after they stop Reno, they go after Custer. And the idea, in fact, that Lakotas themselves thought that Custer was trying to circle around and attack them from the other side of the village. Some military scholars think that uh, Custer realized the village was so large that he needed an advantage, and he could see the fleeing children and, and women and old men who were going upriver, and that maybe he, like another battle, the Washita, if he captured several hostages, he could prevent um, the Lakotas from firing on his men. Uh, we don't know, because Custer <laughs> didn't survive. But anyway, they are able to quickly uh, surround and defeat Custer and the men under him. And then the other battalion under Benteen, which had the pack train, they arrive fairly late. Uh, but once they get to Reno's position, Reno begs them to stop. And uh, even though Reno, even though Benteen had received orders to join Custer, he stops. And once Benteen stops, well, then Custer's doomed for sure. Uh, but Reno's men and Benteen's battalion, uh, they survive. They take heavy casualties, of course, but they do survive. It's a misnomer that everybody under Custer was wiped out. Actually, uh, a good portion of the regiment did survive the battle. What was the reaction in D.C. to this? Well, the reaction was disbelief. In fact, um, General Sheridan or Sherman, I can't remember which one, when the first telegrams arrived, they reported to the press that it was just a false rumor. I mean, it was just incomprehensible. Oh that this could have happened. But finally, when they got confirmation, they had to admit that it did. But yeah, I mean, the first reaction was, oh, this is another one of those silly fake stories. Um, you know, no way, you gotta be crazy. You know, uh, the most da dashing cavalrymen to come out of the Civil War would be defeated by the Lakotas. Uh, and the, the U.S. Army was always uh, underestimating uh, the abilities of uh, these warriors. I mean, they were trained from childhood to be warriors, to shoot arrows straight, to use the land. And then they acquired, you know, guns and they were very good marksmen uh, as well. And so, uh, but anyway, that, that was just a, a problem. Like I say, I mean, you know, the American public to them, the Indians are savages, they're uncivilized. Uh, so first it's disbelief. And then it's like so surreal and under shock. How could this, how could this calamity have befallen? In fact, they found it so unbelievable that there were stories in the papers that Sitting Bull had learned Napoleonic tactics. <laughs> that, and then another story was that Sitting Bull was actually a kind of a dishonored West Point graduate. Uh, you know, they actually, that was more believable to them than the fact that the Lakotas could, could defeat uh, Custer and his men. That, you know, that, so supposedly Sitting Bull learned Napoleonic tactics. It's, it's really hilarious. Wow. So what is the... Lakota's reaction to this? Are they like, did, did, was they stunned? Did this build their confidence? Did it make them a little bit too overconfident in their ability? Well, it wasn't overconfident. I mean, it was initial, it's, you know, it's jubilation also mixed with um, sadness. I mean, they did lose um, uh, warriors in this fight, but it is overall jubilation because uh, not only have they defeated this, this uh, force of long knives that they refer to them as, but they got all this booty. They got guns and ammunition. They got horses. Uh, the personal belongings of the soldiers. Of course, the, the paper money, just so they threw it out in the sagebrush and it just blew away. Um, 
but um, no, I mean, it was uh, for them, it, you know, they had victory dances and celebrations and, um, but, you know, Sitting Bull, though, it was worrisome for him. Um, you know, uh, he'd had a vision before this fight. And in his vision, a voice told him that, you know, there would be this great victory, but his people were not to touch the spoils. If they touched the spoils, then the Lakotas would be doomed. And apparently, from what, you know, we have in the oral histories, Sitting Bull's immediate followers did, you know, obeyed him. But there were lots of other Lakota Steins there, and they did not. And um, so this was this was a worrisome thing for him. And, and Sitting Bull could see into the future. I mean, for him, it's a foreboding of things to come. Uh, so uh, anyway, yeah, so initially it's jubilation. They've had a great victory, and, and the greatest victory that they'd ever had, really, uh, against the U.S. Army. That's surprising that you said that about Sitting Bull, because I would think um... – Again, you know, the non-historian here, I would think, wow, okay, if if the top guys are saying don't do this, the rest of the tribe members would fall in line. But it seems that maybe they don't did they not have that authority? Did they have the authority but it's hard to enforce? Why were people willing to buck the system? Well, he was angry. I mean, but he just could not prevent all of them. Uh and I, and again, the vast majority, even women and children were up there uh looting the bodies and taking, you know, guns, what they could. It was just impossible for him to control, even though he was the overall leader, uh, you know, of that contingent um, of the anti-treaty bands. He could not, you know, he could not keep them. Uh, and, you know, Ryan, also, it's like this is, was such a traditional thing. I mean, you overcome an enemy, mm-hmm. you take scouts, mm-hmm. and you, you take whatever things that you might be able to use. In some way, including uniforms. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the clothing that these men wore. I mean, they were naked when they were found because uh, they could use those coats and and trousers. And uh, in fact, uh, at one at one uh, camp, shortly after they had uh, left the the area of the battlefield, um, there were like more than a dozen or so uh, warriors who uh, dressed up in these uniforms and even had these guidance right the flags. Mm-hmm. And they charged down upon their people as a joke, you know, to scare them. And then when they got closer, everybody started laughing. Oh, it's just our men, you know. They're all dressed up as as the cavalrymen. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, that was uh, that was such ingrained, you know, that you take those things, and it was just impossible. And he could be upset all he wanted, but the, he could also there would be no recriminations. I remember um, uh, there was an interview with White Bull. And they said, um, well, you know, you know, when these warriors, when they jumped out ahead of time, how did you punish them? And he goes, we're not white soldiers. <laughs> we don't punish. You know, they didn't punish in that way, you know, for doing something like that. So, no. So, so there were no recriminations. But, you know, Sitting Bull, again, it, it proved worrisome for him because they disobeyed the orders, the instructions uh, from his vision. And if you said this already, I apologize. How many Lakotas are there? in this area at this time? Well, there, as far as warriors, there's probably, um, you know, anywhere from 1,200 to 1,500. They think at that village, there might've been as many as 5,000 people. People. Uh, okay, yeah. five, and this is both, this is both Lakotas and Cheyennes, and some Arapahoes. Okay. And there's even some uh, uh, Eastern uh, Sioux cousins uh, with them as well. It was, a, I mean, it was a very large village. In fact, it was so large that, it couldn't stay large for very long because of the resources they needed. I mean, when you have thousands of horses, they're, they're grazing off all the, the pasture 
along the stream, there's only so much wood to burn. And then also just feeding that number of people, uh, you end up hunting out all the game uh, for miles around. So it could not, you know, they had these few, uh, you know, few weeks, uh, of, you know, of, of a wonderful experience, all these people together, and they all described it as a joyous time. But it just couldn't last more than a few weeks. They had to keep moving the village, and eventually they broke up into smaller and smaller groups so that they could find enough forage and, and, uh, and game animals to hunt. Yeah, it's one of the things I think Dan Carlin pointed out. Um, when we go back, we think about these battles. You know, we, me, um, you know, people uh, in our era are, are prone to think sure. of kind of a World War II type battle, large infrastructure, large amount of people. And you go back in history, you find that relative to World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, et cetera, the, 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 the battles and the, the, the total number of men that were on the field is pretty small relative to what we yeah. we have today because of all the things that you mentioned. So I think it's always good to kind of set the perspective. You think, oh, battle a little bighorn and, you know, it's Custer and all these men. It's like, well, that's 1,500 dudes. It's like, oh, wow, okay, that's, that's, yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, I'm not trying to diminish it, of course, but just we, we kind of have no. to reorientate how we're thinking about what was going down that day. Right. And it was one regiment, you know, and like, right. like, you know, some of these civil war battles, how many regiments, you know, just the cavalry would you have, but no, you have one regiment of cavalry. Um, but, and here's the other thing too, Ryan, is that, uh, you know, these people are defending their homes. Every, all their worldly possessions are with those lodges, uh, you know, their clothing, their food, uh, you know, their weapons. Um, you know, when, when the cavalry and in, in, in any column, whether it was the infantry or cavalry that's, that was involved in the Indian Wars, they're not dragging along their families and all their worldly goods. Right. Um, but that's what was that's what's going on with the Lakotas, all those lodges. And so, you know, when 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 this column is first spotted, uh, they're going to fiercely fight and protect uh, their homes and their families, their wives and their children. They have they're hugely motivated uh, to defeat this column because they know what happens uh, in the Indian Wars. Uh, when you're defeated and your village is taken, they burn everything. Everything for you to survive is, is consumed with the flames. And they try to capture your horse herd as well. I mean, they really want to, to, to you know, push you down to where you have to succumb and you have to grovel and surrender. Uh, so they knew what the stakes were uh, if Custer was not defeated. So they're, high, like I said, highly motivated to go out there and fight fiercely uh, to protect their families and their homes. Was this the peak of the of the Lakotas? Well, yes, um, it was. Uh, um, from that moment on, uh, of course, I mean, the U.S. military, they're hell-bent to punish and to put an end to this conflict. And they send everything they can. And the advantage they have is that they have all kinds of supplies for their men where they can have a campaign in the dead of winter, which is when the Lakotas and the Shines are most vulnerable. I mean, in the winter, they're, they're trying to hunker down. There's not a lot of forage for their horses, so they can't move uh, rapidly. Um, you know, and then there's snow. And again, you've got your families, your lodges, and it's just, a, it, 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 you know, they're at their most vulnerable. And the U.S. Army knows this. And like I say, they got all kinds of wool blanket coats. Uh, you know, they got all kinds of grain to feed their mules and horses to keep them out in the field, and they can fight all winter long. And that's what they do. They, they continually harass uh, these anti-treaty bands, including Sitting Bull, to the point where uh, early the next year, 
uh, Sitting Bull meets the Crazy Horse. And Sitting Bull said, you know, I'm going to go across the Holy Line to Canada and where we'll be protected. And, and, you know, I'd like you to come with me. And Crazy Horse makes a decision. You know, it's like, I just can't leave the land that belongs to us. This is my land. And I just, I just, I'm not going to be forced off of it. And so he remains. And Sitting Bull goes to Canada. Sitting Bull spends four years up there. Uh, Crazy Horse is eventually, you know, he has, again, a good leader looks out for your people. His people are starving. The buffalo herds have dwindled to hardly anything. And either I surrender and accept the consequences or my people die. And many of his people wanted to surrender because they were suffering. And so he comes in to Camp Robinson in May of 1877. Uh, tragically, in September, he's murdered. He's killed, you know, in a, in a, in a stupid arrest attempt based on rumors. Um, Sitting Bull, the four years were miserable in Canada because there's already uh, nations up there uh, that are competing for the same resources. And the Buffalo are doing, doing no better in Canada than they are in uh, the northern U.S. And in fact, it's so bad that Sitting Bull's people, they're selling their horses for food. I mean, the horse is integral to this culture, this nomadic culture, and they're forced to sell their horses. And then it gets to the point where his people are starving. And it's like, I'm going to cross back into the U.S., take my chances and surrender. Um, and uh, that's what he does. So we're, when these, when the tribes are going through this, um, you mentioned it's, it's, it's a tough, um, were there factions that would break off and go to other tribes or did they kind of just stay together through thick and thin? No, there were factions. Um, while sitting bull, uh, there were actually, uh, several thousand Lakotas, uh, shortly after a little bighorn that had fled to Canada by the time sitting bull surrenders, he's got less than a hundred people, uh, with him, uh, his immediate oh, wow. followers and family. Uh, so yeah, so they were, they were, I mean, these people saw the writing on the wall. I mean, they're starving. And so they, a little bands or factions, they're breaking off. And the same thing happened with Crazy Horse's people as well before he surrendered. There were different groups that tried to break off. Initially, uh, Crazy Horse, in order to stop this, I mean, there was one small family group that tried to flee. And uh, he tracked them down and burned their belongings and killed their horses. But eventually, he just saw, again, the inevitability. And so he himself takes his followers in. And they surrender. But yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there were factions that were breaking off or joining uh, other, you know, it was always acceptable to go to another chief or leader mm. and to that band. And so this kind of thing was happening as well. Red Cloud, of course, had essentially surrendered years ago when he signed that 1868 treaty. He never went to war again and he remained a treaty chief for the rest of his days. What do you find to be the biggest misconception about these various characters when you talk to people like myself? Uh, the biggest misconception? Um, well, I can tell you uh, uh, one of the biggest questions that I get. Um, and one of them is, is there a photograph of Crazy Horse? Have you ever wondered about that? Or mm. Mm. There's no surviving photograph of Crazy Horse. There's been some candidates that have been put forward but you know he was only close to a photographer after he surrendered in may of 1877 and then he's killed in september and everything we know about crazy horse he was modest he was shy he didn't like to speak in council meetings he was really reclusive 
And people that knew him said, no, that's not something he would never do. In fact, people that knew him tried to get him to have, to have a photograph made. So we don't have a photograph of Crazy Horse, whereas we have many uh, of Sitting Bull. Um, now, as far as a misconception regarding Sitting Bull, um, a lot of people tend to think that he um, uh, relished the fame and the celebration that he had uh, after he surrendered. I mean, he was, he was, um, you know, people got his autograph and he was with the Wild West show, right? And, and they think that he was kind of, you know, had a huge ego or whatever. And that's really not the case. Um, when he went with Buffalo Bill, his motivation for going, he had been promised that he would meet with the great white father, the president Cleveland, because he wanted to advocate for his people. They wanted a place set aside for them. They didn't want to be bothered by whites. And so he agreed to go uh, with this promise. Oh, I'll get to talk to the, the president. Well, he did get to see the president, but all he got was a handshake. So essentially he was lied to, uh, and he was very upset about it later. But I do think there's this misconception of Sitting Bull is, you know, is, is the, you know, having a huge ego and uh you know relishing all this fame and attention and all that and and uh i don't think that was uh, necessarily the case the other misconception is is that um a lot of people think that sitting bull was actually a participant in the fighting at little bighorn and he was 45 years old uh, on june 25th 1876 by then he was considered a quote old man chief he wasn't expected to fight um and and but on the other hand you know after the battle's over Everybody, you know, it's like Sitting Bull was the general in command and did all the fighting. No, uh, what he did was he he looked after women and children, tried to get them to safety. And in fact, in his vision, he was told that he should not participate in the fight. He was allowed to carry a weapon for self-protection, but the vision instructed him not to participate in the battle itself. And so he honored that that vision. But, but a lot of people think, you know, and like I said, right after the time, oh, yeah, Sitting Bull was out there killing and stabbing and scalping and that wasn't the case at all. What was the biggest surprise that you discovered researching your book? Well, there were, um, I'd say the biggest surprise for me uh, was how brutal and tragic the deaths of both Crazy Horse and Sitting. They were both bungled arrest attempts and, and they were arrest attempts based on uh, misinformation. I mean, you know, they can, you know, they considered Crazy Horse and City Bulls wanting to make trouble and they have to arrest them. And then it was bungled and they were both needlessly killed. The biggest surprise to me or maybe the most uh, profound moment for me um, when I was doing research, uh, I was at the South Dakota Historical Society and I was alerted to a collection. You know, when you go to these archives, you try to go online ahead of time. You know what you want to see and look at because usually they have a good online catalog. But the archivist said, hey, there's a collection here you might be interested in. We haven't had it that long. And there's some stuff related to Sitting Bull. Well, it turns out it was some things that belonged to an assistant surgeon at Fort Yates. And Fort Yates was right next to the Standing Rock Agency. And this assistant surgeon saw Sitting Bull's body when it came in. And it had been grossly mutilated by the Indian policeman. And uh, he, he and, his, and the actual post-surgeon uh, started, you know, taking, you know, just stealing things from the body. The, uh, uh, the surgeon himself took uh, Sitting Bull's leggings and, and a, ha a hairlock from his head, uh, which was actually, those things were returned a few years ago through repatriation. 
But this assistant surgeon, he took a couple of photographs from Sitting Bull's clothing, and the clothing was all blood-soaked, and so were these photos. Well, in this collection I looked at were these two blood-soaked cabinet cards that had come from Sitting Bull's body. And it was at that moment, for me as a historian, when your subject becomes a real living and breathing human being who was murdered, um, it's so mm. easy for historians to be at a distance from your subject and to examine, you know, you know you're in the 21st century, but when you're holding a, a piece or a thing that has Sitting Bull's blood, you know, that's, you know, that's to me like he's right there. You know, he's real. You know, he's a real thing, a real person living. And so that was the biggest moment for me. And, and that's what all historians, I think, you live for is those moments where you feel that intimate connection. Uh, unfortunately, it was you know, a tragic connection, too. But, but um, yeah, it was, it was a very moving uh, moment for me. If you could ask Crazy Horse, Sitting Bull, or Custer, any of them, one question, and they would answer honestly, what would you like them to answer for you? Well, let's see. Um, I think everybody, I would just want to know what, what was in Custer's mind when he divided the regiment. Um, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't tell anybody why he's doing it. He's just issuing these orders. And even then at the time, you know, he's getting people who are, um, you know, the Indian scouts are saying, why are you doing this? And, you know, Custer says, you know, you take care of the scouting. I'll take care of the, the command here or whatever. So I would love to know, as well as hundreds of others, what was he thinking when he issues those orders exactly? What were you thinking? Um, and uh, so I think that, you know, for Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse, uh, you know, um, there's lots of things that I would like to know uh, from those two individuals. Uh, and, uh, you know, I can't really think of anything right off the top of my head, but definitely that one with Custer is one that I would ask him instantly. <laughs> okay. Um, of course, we're going to link to the book the uh, on Amazon. Uh, your website is there anywhere else you want us to send people to? Um, no, you know, I think those are great. Um, I I would also recommend they check out a website. It's the HarperCollins.com. Okay. And uh, you know, HarperCollins.com. If you look up my book there, it gives you lots of options uh, of where you can place an order. So uh, you know, you're not restricted to just Amazon. You might do Barnes and Noble, but there's lots of independent. Uh, uh, places there and it's really available wherever books are sold so hey if you'd like to go down to your local corner bookstore and i hope you have one because there's not a whole lot of those left but mm-hmm. um yeah you can you can find it and even if they don't have it they can order it for you so there you go okay we will link to all of that in the show notes uh mark i've enjoyed this thank you for your time today well thank you ryan you had really great questions it was a good conversation thanks for listening today really really appreciate it if you could Drop a five-star review wherever you may be. We keep getting on great guests, and that's because you keep supporting that show. If you want to know more, go to warroommedia.com. Ever wonder if the deep state murdered President Kennedy? If Hillary Clinton is kidnapping babies? If the COVID-19 virus is part of a plot to turn your country into an evil dictatorship? Or if Tom Cruise is a shape-shifting alien reptile? Hi, my name is Michel Jacques Gagné. I'm a Canadian author, teacher, philosophical historian, and recovering conspiracist. I'm also the creator and host of the Paranoid Planet podcast, a monthly variety show that combines fun conversations, long-form interviews, thoughtful essays, film and book reviews, 
and a little bit of silliness on the subject of, well, you guessed it, conspiracy theories. So if you want to learn more about conspiracism, if you want to become a better critical thinker, or if you just enjoy listening to interesting conversations in an entertaining format, check out the Paranoid Planet podcast at www.paranoidplanet.ca. That's www.paranoidplanet.ca. Or anywhere you download your favorite podcasts. Until then, make sure you keep the blinds closed, avoid talking to strangers, and, just to be safe, avoid drinking the water out of the tap. You'll thank us for it later. But don't take my word for it. Ask this guy. What do you think tap water is? It's a gay bomb, baby. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. Do you understand that? Ugh, ugh, I'm serious crap. I'm sick of being social engineered. It's not funny.